Welcome to the Trucking Market Update on the State of Freight Podcast, brought to you by FTR, where we share timely transportation intelligence with you on a weekly basis. The Trucking Market Update is hosted by FTR's Vice President of Trucking, Avery Weiss. As Avery presents the information in the podcast, you can follow along and review the graphs and indicators by downloading the PDF or PowerPoint of the presentation from our podcast landing page. A link to the PDF and PowerPoint is available now at www.ftrintel.com podcast. From there, you can also find past episodes and downloads for the Trucking Market Update, as well as the weekly rail market update with Todd Tronowski and much more. That link again is www.ftrintel.com podcast. Welcome to FTR's weekly Trucking Market Update. I'm Avery Weiss, Vice President of Trucking. This is episode 75 for the week of August 17th, 2020. Before we start, a reminder that you can download a PDF with graphics related to this discussion at www.ftrintel.com podcast. You can also download a PowerPoint presentation that includes images of those same charts you can use in your own presentations. Before we launch into the latest data for the week, Let's talk about a couple of news developments that relate to what we are seeing and what we might see in the data that we're going to talk about. First, the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration has extended for another month the emergency declaration that grants drivers and carriers relief from many of the agency's regulations when they are directly assisting with response to the COVID-19 pandemic. However, FMCSA did more than just extend the prior declaration. The agency also reinstated relief for emergency restocking of food, paper products, and other groceries at distribution centers and stores. FMCSA had dropped that relief in its June renewal of the declaration. In a few minutes, we'll review some data that probably points to why FMCSA is renewing that relief now. And speaking of enforcement, you might recall that I've mentioned a few times in the past about how the Commercial Vehicle Safety Alliance, or CVSA, had rescheduled its annual International Road Check event for early May before ultimately canceling it altogether because of COVID. Well, I stand corrected. CVSA didn't cancel International Road Check. It postponed International Road Check. The organization last week announced that it has rescheduled Road Check for September 9th through 11th, with a focus on driver requirements. I bring up International Road Check in the context of the spot market for uh, truck freight because the 72-hour event historically has led to a spike in spot market demand metrics. Basically, to avoid the hassle of getting inspected, many truck drivers have chosen not to operate on those days resulting in a disruption of route guide freight that sends more loads to the spot market. So this dynamic of increased loads and reduced capacity leads to, obviously, an increase in the ratio of loads to trucks in the spot market, what truckstop.com calls the market demand index, and it often leads to higher spot rates as well. Indeed, until a couple of weeks ago, the record high market demand index had occurred during International Road Check in early 2018. This year's Road Check is unusual because it starts two days after Labor Day. 
Now, all things being equal, we would expect spot volumes during the week that includes a federal holiday to be weaker because we basically lose a day of volume. However, if the market were to remain as hot as it has been, we might continue to see elevated loadings that week, even with the holiday. Meanwhile, what otherwise might be a three-day reduction in spot truck capacity could easily turn into a five- or even seven-day reduction. I'm not sure what will happen, and the overall state of the spot market as we head into that week probably is the most important factor. Okay, so that's a good segue into a discussion of the spot market for the week ended August 14th, which was week 32. So even though load volume in the truckstop.com system was down a bit, 1.2%, we still backed into another record in the MDI by virtue of a 2.3% decline in truck postings. You will recall from last week's podcast that in week 31, the MDI had surpassed the prior record set, as I mentioned just a moment ago, in early, 2000, or early June 2018. Okay, so let's look at the segments. Dry van loads declined 2.7% from the prior week, but volume is nearly 90% higher than the same week last year and 95% above the five-year average. Dry van saw a deeper reduction in truck availability than in loads, 6.9%. So the dry van MDI rose to set a record for the second straight week. Refrigerated spot loads decreased 3.7% over the prior week. Volume was about 38% higher than last year and about 64% above the five-year average for the week. While refrigerated load postings in week 32 were down, they still were the third highest of the year. Truck postings were up slightly for the week, but while the MDI for refrigerated eased, it was still the second highest on record. Flatbed spot loads were up, but only slightly, 0.4%, over the prior week. Since a big jump in week 27, flatbed volume has risen only 3.3% in total, but the growth has been steady with increases in four of those five weeks. Loads were nearly 49% higher than last year and nearly 69% above the five-year average. Flatbed loads also were ahead of comparable 2018 levels for the third straight week. The broker posted rate per mile, excluding fuel surcharges, was essentially unchanged for the week. But the prior year comparisons strengthened due to weaker seasonal expectations. So rates were about 19% above last year and 12% above the five-year average. Dry van rates were down about half a cent, but were nearly 37% above last year and about 26% above the five-year average. Refrigerated rates were down 3.5 cents, but were nearly 23% above last year and 17% above the five-year average. For the second straight week, flatbed rates were up less than a penny, but they were nearly 16% higher than the same 2019 week and nearly 8% above the five-year average. Okay, so let's talk just quickly on petroleum and fuel. We're still stuck in the low $40 per barrel with West Texas Intermediate Crude. 
It's just not moving much. We've been between $39 and $43 a barrel since late June. Now, there is some potential for higher prices as inventories continue to come down a bit. Crude inventories for the weekend at August 7th were the lowest since early April, but they're still quite high by historical standards. Um, they are, however, considerably lower than the record levels we saw in mid-June. It could take a while, though, for the combination of increased demand and reduced supply to put any pressure that's meaningful on crude prices. And diesel prices are even more stable than crude prices. In the eight weeks since the national average price in mid-June rose by the most in a single week, 2.2 cents a gallon, the price is up a net of two-tenths of a cent per gallon. The largest increase during that period was seven-tenths of a cent. The largest decline was six-tenths. And by the way, the national average price as of August 17th was $2.42.7. Okay, let's take our weekly look at the labor market, which last week gave us what in this environment passes for reassuring news. It took nearly five months, but the labor market finally has stabilized to the point where we're seeing fewer than a million new claims for unemployment benefits each week, seasonally adjusted. The Labor Department reported 963,000 initial unemployment claims for the week ended August 8. Claims were down 228,000 from the prior week. Only the week before that level or decrease of uh, 244,000 represented a bigger improvement since early June. Still, after 21 weeks of elevated claims due to COVID-19, first-time unemployment claims are nearly 300,000 a week higher than the record before the pandemic. Since early March, or March 14th actually, more than 56 million Americans have filed unemployment claims on a seasonally adjusted basis. The raw unadjusted number is about 4.2 million lower than that, but still more than 50 million. Continued claims for unemployment fell by 604,000 to just under 15.5 million on a seasonally adjusted basis through August 1st. Continued claims data lags initial claims data by a week. Continued claims remain more than double the prior record before the pandemic, but the improvement has been steady. Since the week ended May 9th, continued claims have risen week over week only, one, only twice. <clears throat> In addition to the 15.5 million Americans receiving benefits under regular state unemployment programs, the number of people receiving benefits under the Pandemic Un Unemployment Assistance Program fell by 2.2 million to 10.7 million in the most recent data. That data goes through only July 25th. Uh, as a reminder, the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance Program is mostly for non-payroll workers, independent contractors, gig workers, and so on. So, <clears throat> Adding that to the 15.5 million receiving regular unemployment benefits, the latest data shows around 26 million Americans receiving unemployment and qualifying through the end of July for $600 a week in additional federal support. 
Now, one of the conflicts between House and Senate negotiators on another round of COVID-19 rescue has been the level of continued support for unemployment. In the absence of a legislated response to the continued economic fallout from the pandemic, President Trump on August 8th issued several executive orders aimed at shoring up the financial situation of Americans under distress until Congress and the White House strike a deal, assuming, of course, that they do strike a deal. We talked a little bit about these executive orders in the last podcast, but one of them is particularly relevant here. A, quote, lost wages assistance, end quote, program would provide $300 to $400 a week in additional unemployment benefits with that $100 difference depending on whether an individual state kicked in $100 or not. This would, of course, be one-third to one-half of the federal benefits unemployed people got before August 1st. Also, the $44 billion that funds this, coming out of a FEMA relief fund, would last only about six weeks at current rate of unemployment. And it is unclear when the benefits will start flowing as states have to apply for grants and and there's just your usual uh, startup uh, from the benefits ending uh, at the end of July. So it's a little bit of a mess, frankly, but it is something. I think the most important aspect of this is that it gives unemployed people some hope that they will continue to get benefits. And that might serve to keep them from sharply curtailing their spending, provided, of course, they do have access to savings or credit in the few weeks in the interim. Okay, let's talk about more pleasant things. And frankly, the rest of the podcast is positive to varying degrees. Um, And I will put a little bit of an asterisk there saying that's especially true for carriers as opposed to shippers. And you'll see why at the very end. Okay, let's start with industrial production and manufacturing. Industrial production rose 3% in July from June, not as strong as the 5.7% growth in June from May, but an extraordinarily large increase by historical standards. However, industrial production is still 8.4% below the pre-pandemic level in February, seasonally adjusted. Manufacturing output, meanwhile, was up 3.4% in July. The increases in May, June, and July in manufacturing were all stronger than what they were in the broader industrial production category. However, compared to February, manufacturing output really isn't that much better than industrial production. It's still down 7.7%. And there's another caveat when we're talking about these manufacturing numbers. And that is that the strength is quite clearly centered in automotive. The largest gain in manufacturing in July, 28.3%, was registered by motor vehicles and parts. If you exclude that sector, factory production was up just 1.6%. Now, in a normal economy, a 1.6% increase in manufacturing would be extraordinary. In fact, a larger An increase larger than that has happened only four times, and three of those times were May, June, and July. But given the depth of the contraction, it does show that there is still a deep hole for manufacturing, aside from automotive at least. 
Okay, that was on the low end of positive. Let's talk about retail sales for July. The bad news is that growth has slowed substantially. Total retail and food service sales were up 1.2% in July, which certainly is strong in a normal economy, but it is hardly unprecedented. But in June, retail and food service sales were up 8.4%, and in May they were up 18.3% after the big contraction in March and April. So putting all that together, we end up with the good news, which is that retail sales in July, seasonally adjusted, were 1.7% above February. In fact, if you looked at a graph, which you can in the slide deck accompanying this podcast, of retail sales, you'll see that it's very much a classic V-shaped recovery. There were two sharp down months, three reasonably sharp up months, and sales are just about where they would have been if the graph had just continued in a straight line from January through July and into August. Month over month, major retail categories were up, led by electronics and appliance stores, which rose about 23%. The biggest decliners, which weren't down by much, were a couple of categories that fared quite well during the pandemic. One is sporting goods, musical instrument, and bookstores. The other is building material and garden supplies dealers. Also down slightly were motor vehicle and parts dealers and general merchandise stores. The picture is a bit more mixed when we look at July relative to February. Not surprisingly, the leading category is non-store retailers. After that, sporting goods, hobby, etc., food and beverage stores, and building material and garden supplies led the way. At the other end of the spectrum were clothing stores and restaurants and bars, both of which are still down about 20% from February. Gas stations were down about 14% from February, and department stores about 10%. The slide deck accompanying the podcast shows how all major retail sectors fared relative to June and to February. Finally, in retail sales, something we've been tracking for about a year now is the level of non-store retail versus general merchandise stores and also food and beverage stores. By mid-2019, non-store retail had surpassed both categories of brick-and-mortar stores. Things went crazy during the pandemic, though. In March, sales by food and beverage stores skyrocketed to above the level for non-store retail. But that lasted just one month. Non-store retail in May was up 24% from February. It has moderated just a bit since, but non-store retail is still 22% above February. So we have seen the consumer sector recover faster than industrial, But in a broader sense, you could say that sales have outpaced production. And while we are hearing that imports are booming lately, at least on the West Coast, we remain behind the curve there as well, at least based on the latest data. For all U.S. businesses, the level of inventories on an absolute basis has fallen every month since December. However, during that same period, retail sales are up 2%. In April, the total business inventories-to-sales ratio jumped to its highest level ever. Just two months later, though, the ratio had fallen to the lowest level since late 2018. However, when we drill down, we see a more complicated picture. The inventory-to-sales ratio 
in retail in June was the lowest in the 28 years that the Census Bureau has tracked the data. However, the ratio in manufacturing in June was the highest since February 1996, except for April and May, which were two of the three highest ever. In wholesale, the June inventories to sales ratio was the fifth highest ever, and number one and number two were April and May. Now remember, this is data for June, so it is quite possible that the strength we have seen in the spot market over the past couple of months has quite a bit to do with restoring a normal level of inventories in the retail sector. Now, of course, it's possible that once we've normalized retail, we will see a need to restore inventories to wholesale and manufacturing, but based on the June data, those inventories are so swollen relative to sales that we might not need an inventory correction in manufacturing and wholesale. And if we don't, we very well could see freight demand level off, possibly even worse, once retail is normalized. Of the seven major segments of retail inventories tracked by the Census Bureau, the only retail segment in which inventories were not below normal in June was clothing and clothing accessory stores. The inventories to sales ratio for furniture, electronics, and appliance stores was the lowest ever in June. The motor vehicle and parts ratio was the second lowest ever. Except for May, the ratio for building materials and garden supplies dealers was the lowest since early 2006. The ratio for food and beverage stores was much higher in June than it was in March, but it remains far below the ratio before the pandemic. The same basically is true for general merchandise. March of this year was the only month in which the ratio was lower than June in that category. And the inventories to sales ratio for department stores isn't the lowest ever, but it is the lowest in six years. And as with the detail on retail, the slide deck accompanying this podcast includes graphs on the inventories to sales ratios for each of those seven major retail sectors. Finally, let's talk about freight rates. We already discussed how strong the spot rate environment is. Last week, we got data showing that the broader truckload rate environment is rebounding as well. The producer price index for truckload primary services, which roughly approximates contract pricing based on government survey data, jumped 4.8% in July from June. Although that gain was off a low base, the increase was the largest single-month jump on record, more than double the prior record. Now, the truckload PPI is still 2.2% below February, but all things considered, that's not so bad. Meanwhile, the producer price index for LTL primary services was up 3% in July. And compared to February, the LTL PPI is down just 0.2%. So that's it for this week's podcast. Let's recap. The ratio of loads to trucks in the spot market again was the highest ever. Crude prices remain stuck in the low $40 a barrel range. Diesel prices have barely moved in eight weeks. First time unemployment claims finally fell below 1 million. Continued claims eased to 15.5 million. Industrial production and manufacturing were higher in July, but are still well below February levels. The growth in retail sales is slowing, 
but sales are now ahead of February. The ratio of inventories to sales in retail was the lowest ever in June, but the ratios in manufacturing and wholesale were still very high. The truckload services producer price index saw its largest increase ever in July, and the LTL services PPI was up 3% and was just slightly below February. So that's it for FDR's Trucking Market Update, episode 75 for the week of August 17th, 2020. As always, you can download PDF and PowerPoint files accompanying this discussion at www.ftrintel.com podcast. Thanks for listening, stay safe, and we hope you will join us next week. You can find more publicly available state of freight content and download the PDF and PowerPoint of today's presentation by going to www.ftrintel.com podcast. FTR is the leader in freight transportation forecasting in North America, providing consistently reliable reports for trucking, rail, and intermodal transportation, as well as providing demand analysis for commercial vehicle and rail car. For more information about the work of FTR, visit www.ftrintel.com or call us at 888-988-1699 to find out which publications will best support your business.